0: A Nebraska farmer may have come across a way to boost success when restoring forest areas burned by wildfires. Then we're going to shift gears and talk about cattle herd security and what the industry sees as key priorities moving forward. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. The aftermath of a forest fire lays waste to decades, even centuries of old growth forest land. Bringing it back efficiently takes work, and one Nebraska farmer has found some tactics that could be helpful for others in the future. Kurt Ahrens with Nebraska Farmer traveled to the Pine Ridge area of the state to check in on what's happened since a fire burned through the area in 2012. He also shares some interesting Native American history related to this range laid bare by fire. It's an interesting addendum to this story about innovating forest recovery. Let's check in with Kurt to learn more. Well, Kurt Arns, welcome to Around Farm Progress. How are you, Willie? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And you've been busy. Um, you actually you've been doing the thing you like to do best. You got out of the office and you went to the some a pretty part of Nebraska in the Red Pine area. Why did you go there, and what did you find? Well, you know,
1: Willie, anytime I get to go out west in Western Nebraska is a good day for me, I guess, because it's one of my favorite parts of our state, and uh, one of the most beautiful parts too. And and uh, I. Uh, last fall, I went up into uh, what's called the Pine Ridge in Nebraska. It would be in the northern panhandle. I was uh, a few miles north of Hay Springs on Flying Heart Ranch. And uh, the thing about this area is about a decade ago, 2012, as as we all know, wildfires, you know, really hit the West hard. And this particular area was uh, hit by the Wellness Fire. It burned uh, in late August 2012 about all, near very nearly 100,000 acres on up into South Dakota, um, burned out an awful lot of uh, pine, ponderosa pine-covered uh, pasture, uh, a lot of grassland, and did an awful lot of damage. And the ranch where I was, um, about 3,000 acres, it's uh, uh, David and Scott uh, Kedlicek's ranch, uh, burned about a third of their uh, pine pastures. And... Uh, darn near took their house and their farmstead it was very very close um in fact david told me that uh in the midst of this fire which they really weren't sure how they were going to stop it um it was just unlike any wildfire that they had ever seen and that family had been on this ground for over 100 years so they've seen a few fires but yeah um they actually lit the backfire on their place and uh he said Talk about a, a jolt when they come through and say, David, we're going to light our a backfire on your place and try and get this thing stopped right here. And it's just, you know, basically yards from your house. Um, that will get your attention.
0: Yeah, I bet it does. I bet it does. In the aftermath of all that, though, they wanted to replant, right? They wanted to start to restore what they'd lost. But before they did that, the landowners did something I never thought you'd do after a fire. What? Well, but what did he do? Well, you know, they, there's a lot of
1: uh, history of logging in that particular part mm-hmm. of the country. Um, you know, the ponderosa pine forests have been there for centuries, and and so part of their income stream is uh, to uh, gain some income from those trees. They, of course, do some custom grazing uh in the summertime where they manage all the fencing and the watering systems for uh cattle that are brought in and then and then brought back out in the fall so you know the forage part of it's pretty darn important to them but they also wanted to reforest these areas that were burned so hotly and the north slopes of a lot of these big ridges um on their on their branch were burned the hottest and they basically were left with you know Burned up toothpicks on these north slopes of most of their pastures, but they wanted to try and figure out a way to reforest this. And uh, you know, replanting efforts on ponderosa pine in that particular part of the state have been successful, but survivability of those seedlings has been a little tricky. I mean, you know, dry summers and and hot weather has put has taken a toll on a lot of the replanting efforts. Uh, it previously on previous efforts. So they wanted to try something different and see if they couldn't get the ponderosa pine back. And uh, so they did some test plantings on their place that were sort of unusual, trying out just some different things that they thought might work. And uh, lo and behold, uh, they found some success.
0: Yeah, but they did something like I was, I guess what I was alluding to is that they Climbed into the compact track loader and hit the toothpicks with a mulcher.
1: Exactly, and that that was that was kind of the <laughs> kicker that uh, that no one had thought of before when they were doing the replanning. Um, David had a Bobcat T uh, 770 and and uh, with a five foot uh, sh- uh, shredder mulch mulching head on it, mm-hmm. and he got on some really you know it's tracked it's on track. so he got in some pretty steep slopes. And he started notching down and grinding down these burned up toothpicks and the burned up ponderosa pines, some some fairly large logs Mm -hmm. um, and made mulch out of it because they were worried about erosion um, after the fire. There just was nothing to hold the ground in place. We're talking about some very steep stuff. And so wherever he could get, he got got in the bobcat and, and mulched everything down. Even on logs that he really couldn't mulch completely, he would notch them so that they would eventually, you know degrade over time. Um, and the whole idea was just to hold soil in place, get some forage growing back, and uh, <clears throat> what you know the and then because of this having this mulch laying on on these side these side hills, these deep ridges, when they went back to replant, trying to test and replant some trees, they decided to plant some of these seedlings into these mulch piles. Mm. And it was just kind of an accidental thing. But the the places where they replanted pine seedlings into the mulch piles are maybe double in size now, uh 10 years later, eleven years later, than trees that were just
0: planted into the side hill without the mulch. So I think maybe they're onto something. Sounds like it. I mean, we know mulch is a good thing for plants around our houses. We know that mulch helps trees keep weeds out of the way and hold moisture in the ground. Apparently, it works with bare root pine when you dig it into mulch. You know, and the survivability uh, ratings that they've done on
1: their test sites with Nebraska Forest Service have been kind of outstanding. I mean, normally you might figure... 40 to 50 percent survivability on a regular pine seedling and under these really harsh conditions. I mean, you know, the Pine Ridge, you know, if they get 15 inches in a year, they, uh, 15 to 18, that's really a, a wet year. And so they're they're under low precip, some pretty hot temperatures. So 40 to 50 percent is what you might expect. But the checks in their sites where they planted into um, these mulch piles, uh, sort of random mulch piles, they're seeing over 90% survivability. And this is at three different test sites planted at different times, you know, uh, on kind of similar conditions. And they've got trees that they planted, I'm going to say, seven or eight years ago that are eight feet, nine feet tall, uh, that were planted in some mulch piles. That's pretty outstanding. I mean, it's almost hard to believe until you see it. And so this is sort of a new discovery, I think, for for a lot of in even in the forestry industry on reforestation efforts after wildfire it's it's kind of cutting edge stuff
0: but it's giving foresters ideas right i mean you've got some issues in nebraska and other parts of the country too i assume those uh, uh depression era shelter belts red cedar issues what are they thinking about with those
1: Yes. Well, you know, David's been on the Natural Resources District Board uh, in Shadron in that in his area for quite some time. So he's always thinking conservation and always thinking tree planting and that kind of thing. So it's on his mind. So having been involved in all these types of things, the demonstrations and kind of the testing that they've done on their own ranch, he thinks it might transfer into at least a partial solution to the eastern red cedar invasion problem. So we, we could start there, you know, with uh, eastern red cedars, the fastest, you know, growing forest resource in a lot of the Great Plains states. Uh, Nebraska and Kansas are kind of in the target, and we're one of the a couple of the worst states probably as far as what they might call the green glacier. I've heard it called, um, oh. you know, because it's it's not wanted. I mean, it's eating up pastures. Eating up rangeland and grazing land, and uh, so a cedar tree is great in a shelter belt, not so great where you don't want it to be. So David thinks that why couldn't we, you know, mulch? down at least the medium-sized trees into mulch and plant something that would be more useful like a ponderosa pine that could actually be logged someday and provide an income stream on some of these pastures where, where it makes sense, not everywhere, but where it would make sense. Um, and then the other second part of that is, you know, we still have a lot of shelter belts uh, planted going back to the New Deal in the 30s. But a lot of them planted in the 50s and and subsequent years that really are in need of renovation. I mean, they're overgrown in, in mulberry and other hard, maybe less desirable hardwoods, and they're not functioning like they should. They're not breaking the wind. They're not holding snow like they should because the cedar trees in those shelter belts are beat up and uh, have. You know, ice and snow have taken their toll on them and they need to be renovated. What happens, unfortunately, a lot of times is these shelterbelts get just taken out and then they're gone and they're probably gone forever. What David thinks and some of some of the foresters think uh, that maybe using a mulching head, just as he did on the Ponderosa, uh, take kind of mulching out some of these windbreaks, these old windbreaks, and then planting, replanting a new windbreak into the mulch um, would be a way to use the mulch as a biodegradable, uh, you know, way to kind of, even out the temperature of the soil, uh, conserve moisture, keep the weeds down. So, you know, there's a lot of pluses to this idea and now it just needs to be tested probably um, more. So I look for this to come come into something and for this this mulching head idea to be a pretty, pretty cutting edge thing for
0: maybe renovation on some shelter belts. Those mulching heads are pretty amazing. They're some of my favorite videos to watch at a farm show. If you go by the exhibit for one of the companies that makes them and you just watch their videos. And some of them are uh, different designs. They actually spread the mulch more effectively. So when they hit the tree, it's not just a pile. They can kind of move the mulch around, which I think would be an issue for this. right? You don't want to stack it too deep when you're going to plant a tree into it, I would assume. Right, the mul- spreading
1: the mulch at, to the correct uh, depth is re- would be really important in this case because you don't want to drown out the the seedling and uh, and so yeah, there's just all kinds of good benefits that I can see from this. Besides, in our country, um, farmers have used. Uh, plastic weed barrier uh to conserve moisture keep the weeds down kind of you know in my day we always had to go on our hands and knees and pull weeds around new shelterbelt plantings it was no fun so the weed barrier was a a great advance from that but as those trees grow older um the barrier has it has kind of the tendency to girdle some of the trees and so then you're left with trying to cut them off there i've seen rollers made for skid steers To try and pull the the plastic uh, off of shelterbelt plantings, you know, after five or six years, it's just a massive job. So if we could use a mulch like this, create our own weed barrier that's biodegradable so we don't have to go back in and do something like that man, it just seems like a great opportunity. So I I really think that this is going to be something that may make it a lot easier, more convenient, um, and increase the survivability of new windbreak plantings, even under some kind of harsh weather
0: conditions. Yeah, it's exciting. And if there's opportunities to deploy these kinds of strategies in California, Idaho, Utah that have been hit by wildfires, that could be really cool and uh, always important. You know, there's one other thing I wanted to touch on when I read your story about all this. I know you're a history buff, a Nebraska history buff. And when you're on Cadillac's operation, there is some great Native American history, isn't there?
1: Yeah, I, you know, and I kind of stumbled on it. I, I think uh, my friend who's a forester in that area took me up on the ranch and he, he kind of knew – Knew this about me, and and so he tipped David off. And uh, anyway, one of the last things that uh, we saw when I was when I was up there for the day, uh, David said, "Well, I, I want to show you something before before we leave the pasture." <laughs> so he takes me up. Uh, there's a a series of uh, buttes. It's uh, Eagle Trap, Scout Point, and then there's another unnamed butte uh and they overlook i don't know it must be 150 200 feet down to the beaver creek and i knew a little bit of the history of this area but this was uh when crazy horse was was uh roaming this this part of the country you know it was one of his favorite camping grounds and actually he camped on on this ranch um much of the time and his family did too and so you know he He took me up around this corner and he said, well, that's the Beaver Creek down there. He started telling me a little bit about the Lakota heritage of that particular valley. And, uh, you know, the hair started rising up on the back of my neck and that kind of thing. (laughs) It was it was really something. So um, I don't know. For those of you who don't know, um, Crazy Horse, the great Lakota warrior, you know camped in that area he ended up surrendering There's just a lot of history behind it that i won't go into yeah. but he surrendered to fort robinson which is nearby in uh in early 1877 and uh through you know there's a lot of intrigue involved in in his murder at, at fort robinson but he was killed at september 1877 well then uh this is kind of where david's story starts mm-hmm. uh his his family his parents Came and retrieved the body at Fort Robinson, and uh, a lot of the historians believe that uh, his Crazy Horse's body was taken taken back up into South Dakota. But uh, David's friends in La- that are Lakota friends and, and know a lot about the history of this, um, told David's parents when he was young that uh, his parents took Crazy Horse's bones to a, a tree uh, on their property. And uh, it was a scaffold burial. And then after, uh, I'm not sure the exact time period, but over over a time period, they retrieved his bones from the tree and then um, buried them on a butte on the Kadlechek ranch. Uh, They did a rock slide over top of the bones and they've been undisturbed ever since. No one knows for sure about this, but uh, the Lakota people tell David that this is the spot and uh you know he has a lot of visitors who are native american visitors who come up to see that site to pray there and uh you know knowing the history of this particular valley and uh hearing david tell a little bit about it his his parents actually wrote a book um that was uh history that they had learned from the lakota people about you know what transpired in 1877 so it's phenomenal history uh I can't blame Crazy Horse for loving this area because it is absolutely gorgeous, and uh, you know it's just a
0: one of those really neat days to be out on the job, Willie. I bet it was. I got to get out to that part of Nebraska because the only part I know about Nebraska is corn on eighty. So, yeah, well, and I know it's better a than whole that. New world. <laughs> I know it's better. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a whole new. I know. I'm not. But I think a lot of people think that about Nebraska, and I'm reading your story, and I'm going, I've not seen country like that in Nebraska. I want to, so that's cool. Well, Kurt Arns, this has been a pleasure, and congratulations on finding and being taken up to this operation to learn about this. But I think the fun part of the story is to take on rebuilding after a fire maybe taking out old shelter belts maybe taking on red cedar all with a mulcher i think that's a i think it's hilarious frankly that it was something so simple somebody stumbled upon and it could be a big deal for forestry
1: i really hope it is and you know we'll be following this story as it goes forward and and i think we have you know because of the success of this site there's probably going to be a lot of folks very interested from forest services and in the state agencies you know that that kind of follow the eastern red cedar deal so so it's kind of exciting stuff and it was really a pleasure to be a part of it
0: oh that's cool and thank you for sharing that story it's been good to talk to you kurt take care you bet thanks willie Thanks to Kurt Arns with Nebraska Farmer for that insight. Kurt is a history buff and loves to learn more about Nebraska history and what's going on in the state. It's always great to catch up with him. Like last week, I'm turning our attention to beef as we continue featuring interviews that the Farm Progress team picked up during the National Cattlemen's Beef Association Cattle Industry Convention. First, we'll hear from a conversation Betty Haynes with Prairie Farmer had with Julia Herman, NCBA Beef Cattle Specialist and Veterinarian, who discusses what biosecurity means to producers. And after Betty's conversation, check out the talk Jennifer Carrico with Wallace's Farmer had with Mark McCulley, CEO of the American Angus Association. Julia Herman opens the conversation with Betty by sharing her role at NCBA. Give it a listen.
2: Julia Herman, beef cattle specialist veterinarian with the producer education team. Uh, so my role is education development and veterinary outreach and so anything uh, that has to do with uh, beef quality assurance program but also we have some education uh, responsibilities on the consumer side too. Uh, but I am the veterinary and technical and expertise behind all of our resources.
3: And what led you to your current position?
2: Oh, well, previously I was in private practice in uh, Kansas. I did uh, practice at a Primarily cow calf operation, got some really great experience there. I also have taught at the Colorado State University Vet School in the livestock department, so uh, I really do. I, I didn't realize I loved teaching, but I do. <laughs> so uh, this was a this is a great next step because everything I do is education, and um, it's been it's been a fun it's been a fun trip. So okay, very cool.
3: Um, so. I feel like both your topics are super hot right now. Uh, Biosecurity. Quick take what do folks need to know?
2: Awesome. So, biosecurity uh, in general, we we think about that as diseases coming, preventing diseases coming onto the ranch, but also preventing if you have, say, you have an outbreak of bovine respiratory disease, preventing it from going off the ranch or farm. And uh, there's a lot of other th- other things that play into biosecurity. I think some people think it's just like cleaning and disinfection, or some, you know, and that's one part of it. But uh, you know, are you keeping those animals healthy throughout the year? Are you uh, providing a good vaccination program so that they are at lower risk of developing severe disease from whatever you're vaccinating against? Uh, Are you providing a good plan of nutrition so that their their immune systems are strong so if they do have a risk, they're able to fight it off? Are you handling them in a low-stress manner so that you're not stressing them so that they could have uh, a bad reaction to whatever virus or bacteria that they're exposed to? So biosecurity is more than just... Uh, what comes on and off your farm? It's how you're handling those animals on the farm, and uh, it's all it's all about prevention, right? So you want uh, all these preventive measures put into place to prepare those cattle to be as strong as they can be, and uh, then hopefully they don't get sick if if something happens to come onto your ranch that you can't control.
3: Okay, and you. Took a trip to Uganda. True. To research foot and mouth disease.
2: Correct? Yes. Yes. Tell me about that. What? Yeah. So uh, in Uganda, well, so in February of 2020, uh, before the world shut down, um, I was in, uh, fortunate enough to go to Uganda uh, with a group of uh, animal health experts from. Uh, from North America, and so our goal was to go learn about foot and mouth disease in an endemic country. And so Uganda has foot and mouth disease all the time. They're never going to get rid of it. It's in their, it's in their uh, livestock. It's in their wildlife. they they just have to live with it. And so we want to. Um, We wanted to learn from them because the United States has not seen foot and mouth disease since 1929. We don't want it um, because there's a lot of, there's some animal health uh, issues with being foot and mouth disease positive, but there's also a lot of trade issues with being foot and mouth disease positive. So while we were there, we were able to see two active outbreaks. And we walked through the entire uh, investigation on how to trace that disease, how to trace that infection from one farm to another. We got to see the animals with their clinical signs, test them for the disease. Uh, we got to talk to the farmers on how that uh, the outbreak was affecting, one, their animals, but two, their business. Um, the region we were in, they were in a multi uh, they're in a multi-week or multi-month infection or uh, outbreak and so they weren't able to sell their animals they weren't able to transport their animals for that entire time period and so it was very eye-opening to figure out how the United States livestock industry would uh, would respond to foot and mouth disease because it's not just a cattle issue it's uh, any cloven-hoofed animal can get infected with this virus so pigs sheep goats wildlife cattle all of those can be infected and so um, it was it was very eye opening to see what 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 they had to do to keep going in their business. But then uh, again, we have a very we have a naive herd here in the United States. Um, so if we get foot and mount disease, what's going to happen? And the answer is a, a, a lot of steps and a lot of a lot of things are going to disrupt our everyday activities.
3: OK, wow, that's great stuff. So that's been a big topic okay. here. Foot and mouth disease. Foot and mouth disease vaccines. Yes. Um, Could you talk about that and what NCBA is doing?
2: So NCBA has a lot of great relationships with uh, in our in the DC area and the organizations working to prevent and respond to foot and mouth disease. And NCBA has really been really instrumental in uh, advocating for more vaccines uh, in our arsenal uh, in case foot and mouth disease gets here. Uh, On on our team, uh, we're focusing on the producer level, and so that's part of uh, our biosecurity planning and what we're teaching with that. And so, teaching for biosecurity uh, <laughs> protocols for daily diseases, so like bovine respiratory disease, we talked about that earlier. Yonis disease, lepto, things like that. Um, a lot of the steps that you can take to protect protect your operation from those diseases do apply to a foreign animal disease like foot and mouth disease, and so. BQA is really starting at the basics and teaching principles of biosecurity, uh, going through various uh, aspects of the operation, like what people are coming onto your operation, what animals are coming onto your operation, do you have a quarantine period for new animals coming onto your operation, Uh, do you have a training protocol for your employees? there are a lot of different ways that you can evaluate biosecurity on your farm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the biosecurity plan, it's a BQA daily biosecurity plan for disease prevention, and it's available on the website, bqa.org. And it's, uh, you can fill it out as a fillable PDF or you can download it and print it and handwrite, uh, through all the sections. Uh, we we recommend that people go through that with their families, with their veterinarians, uh, and really evaluate what they're doing now on a daily basis to protect their animals and their herd. Uh, But then um, BQA always focuses on continuous improvement. So what can we improve? Uh, Biosecurity is a verb. It's always changing. And so your biosecurity plan today is not going to be the same as it is two days from now. And so uh, we recommend looking at a biosecurity plan at least one to two times a year just to make sure that you're staying on top of it. And it's not necessarily the written part that's super important, uh, but it's like going through the process, like, under, you know, go, uh, thinking through each of those steps. And then if you have an outbreak situation, you're able to recall that a little bit faster and react or and, uh, I guess, react within the situation a little bit faster.
3: Do you feel like you saw any parallels between what the COVID-19 pandemic did to the U.S.? Do
2: you see any parallels to what foot and mouth disease could do? Oh, absolutely. There's, yep. <laughs> uh, as as the when the outbreak was happening, well, I think one of the parallels is prevention is better than reacting in the moment. So we know that COVID, we didn't, we couldn't really prepare for it all that well. We didn't know what was coming, and so I think we all recognized the, you know, the daily changing directions, the. Um, Sometimes uh, things weren't communicated well to everybody to make sure that they were all on the same page. I think uh, I think we can learn from that lesson with our foot and mouth disease preparation, and this is where the training for all of our cattle producers comes from. We want the everybody to be on the same page before this happens, so that we can all work collectively as a team towards, you know, eradicating disease, protecting our animals, and getting. Uh, getting our industry back on its feet. I think the other thing was COVID. Uh, so at the very beginning when we were all um, told to stay home, so in a foot and mouth disease outbreak, first 72 hours is gonna be a complete standstill for animal movement, for, for the susceptible species. So cattle, pigs, sheep, goats, wildlife. Uh, and so that's gonna be very similar. And that is going to be, one, it's to, hopefully you know prevent the transmission of that virus from going from one the infected herd to other herds Mm -hmm. but it's also for uh the people at usda the state veterinarians they're going to be able to go through those investigative steps uh and try to figure out uh, and try to do that trace back like we did in uganda like tracing back where where did that infection come from where did those animals go to? Who got exposed, et cetera? And so that's what that seventy-two hour standstill is going to do. Um, so that's a. Those are just quick parallels uh, between the COVID pandemic and what could happen with a foot and mouth disease outbreak here in the
3: U.S. That is fascinating. Um, anything else, biosecurity that you think readers should know?
2: I think. Uh, I think biosecurity, um, biosecurity can be as intense or as as intense as you want it to be. Uh, Producers have the most control over their biosecurity. I mean, you can tell, you know, you can put up signs, you can put up gates, you can put up whatever you want to protect your herd, Um, but. It's up to it's up to the producer to go through that information and, and make that plan. Uh, but we really encourage them to be proactive and and going through this now when we aren't in an outbreak, um, because there's a step to this. So our biosecurity plan uh, that BQA created is we call it an intermediate step. So between not having anything and the plan that you'll need. Uh, during a foot and mouth disease outbreak Mm -hmm. uh to move cattle to move um, your products if you're in a if you're in a control zone so outside of that infected zone um, secure beef supply is that plan so that we call that the enhanced biosecurity plan that's specific to foot and mouth disease and if you compare the two plans they're very similar Um, we based our bqa plan off the secure beef supply plan so all of the sections are the same the wording is very similar so that Uh, producers when they move from one to the other it's not brand new Um, but they will notice that in the enhanced biosecurity plan for instance uh, your cleaning and disinfection steps are a lot more strict with foot and mouth disease than they are on your daily biosecurity plan and so uh, the BQA plan is um, it's that building block to uh, to being prepared for a foreign animal disease and filling out that enhanced biosecurity plan
3: Sounds great. Sounds like you've got some really awesome stuff coming down the pipe for producers. So thank you, Dr. Herman.
2: Uh, Any last thoughts before we close? Uh, I appreciate the time to talk. Uh, We have a lot of great educational resources on uh, the BQA website, bqa.org. And uh, we're always trying to figure out what tools producers need and what tools that uh, will help them have a stronger operation and that's what we're here to help for okay thank you thanks
0: thanks to betty haynes with prairie farmer for her conversation with julia herman herman's insights on the value of the beef quality assurance program and its role in managing biosecurity was fascinating Next up, we turn our attention to a conversation Jennifer Carrico with Wallace's Farmer had with Mark McCulley, CEO of the American Angus Association. They discuss electronic identification and what it can mean for seed stock producers. There's also a role for EID and traceability for biosecurity. Jennifer starts right off with an important question about EID.
3: Why is traceability and EID important to seed stock producers and to Angus producers?
4: I think, you know, you almost have to kind of separate those two just a little bit. I think EID is a, is a means for, for traceability. And I know for, for us as a breed association, we have spent a lot of time here talking about how do we make data collection, phenotypic data collection for our breeders, how do we make that easier? How do we make the registration process easier and all of that and so just recently uh, our board has chosen to accept electronic identification as a form of permanent identification which has been a big move for uh for us as the breed association really again embracing the technology that's that's there for our breeders to use uh however they choose and and we know we have a lot of folks that are they're they're using eids it it's, it allows them to collect that data uh, more, uh, more effectively, more efficiently, more accurately um, at the uh, shoot side, and or whatever software and things they're using, and allows that to get that uploaded into our into our breed association database as efficiently as possible.
3: So people that have animals that already have those uh, in them, they can upload that information to be included then? Will it be on like the registration papers yep. as well?
4: Yep, it's, it's, we're going to require an 840 tag. So um, uh, as And again, it's not mandatory that they have right. to do an EID, but it's an option that, that if a, a breeder wants to use EID as a permanent form of identification today and say not have a tattoo or not have a freeze brand as we previously required, um, we think most will probably still, they're gonna still need management codes and tags and identification and things. But then it allows them to upload that into that, that, that registry of that animal and we will put that, that EID will go on the registration paper. Um, we're gonna have it, um, you know, blinded uh, to an extent like you would think about a credit card number being blinded. We wanna make sure we, we respect the, 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 the privacy of, of that, um, but, but still maintain the, a way to communicate that that animal identity
3: so have had has the board talked anything more about uh or extended you know i know there's a lot of different um technologies out there that collect that have data collection that go with it um and and management of those is there anything any discussion about that kind of thing weights and yeah, Everything.
4: actually, a, a lot—a lot of discussion around um, the different ways that that our members, our breeders, are u- collecting data, that are managing their operations. Um, we've we've tried to, to be um, um, understanding and agnostic to really all of these different software programs and technologies, and work as seamlessly with those as we can. So, where if you're if you're using software herd management program XYZ, um, we have. We've worked with that, that program to have their, their, their data export um, reports set up in the format that most easily uploads into our program. So we've tried to be really aware of what our breeders and members are, are using. Uh, we have some of our own programs uh, that we use. as a, uh, One is a, um, a cloud-based or, or, or online-based, and the other is a, is a software program that we've had for, for a long time. So continuing to see how all of those interface, what what we what we know is our our breeders are as time crunched as, as ever, um, and we also know in this world of seed stock selection, it's we're we're asking for we need more data, more phenotypic data for some traits we want to better describe for the breeders, and so we're asking for more data collection at a time when people don't have time to. to collect data, turn right. in data. So we're just working with all of those, trying to make it as easy as possible. EID or any new technology, I mean, we're talking about EID today, but technologies down the road that um, allow for that data transmission uh, to, uh, to to occur is, is something we'll take a hard, hard look at. Mm-hmm.
3: Let's shift a little bit to more of the traceability. Yep. Um, we know traceability is important for disease um, finding the disease source and those kind of things how how have has angus what have you guys talked about um you know amongst your board or my association of you know why uh, obviously we need to know if there's a disease for an animal disease right. outbreak but um how do you talk amongst yourselves and, yeah, yeah. and communicate to your members yeah
4: you know and, and traceability is one of these topics as, as an industry we've been we've been wrestling with this thing for a long time i mean i've been in professionally in the industry for, for a couple decades now, and 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 we seems to be a, a reoccurring topic. I, I don't know that there's much resistance out there across our 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 membership in particular around the need for disease traceback. I think we all see the potential threats that 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 occur with something like a foot and mouth disease where we where we would need to 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 isolate that uh, that that. That, that disease as fast as possible, do the trace back, you know um, maintain our export markets, um, all of those things, I, I think there's there's wide wide uh, agreement that those things are important. Probably the methodology by which we do that who has the data who's the keeper of the data there's always data privacy questions um who um is there liability issues that come with traceability i know we would have some members and some cattlemen that that would have concerns that um you know if something downstream happens to that to that product and because it's now fully traceable back to me things tend to roll downhill does that increase my liability i think those are the questions and and, and those are not new questions either right right? but i think those tend to be the questions we have when we have this topic um, uh, discussed Um, as a breed association we've probably really kind of limited our scope around traceability to those things making sure that you know, we maintain, you know, for, for our breed registry, animal identification, um, uh, and, and, and now today with genomics, you know, we can do a better job with parentage and, and lineage traceability, if you will. Um, but that's, that's probably the context a lot of the discussion has been in. Okay,
3: great.
0: There's a lot going on this week. Thanks to Jennifer Carrico with Wallace's Farmer for that insightful conversation about electronic identification. Thanks also to Kurt Ahrens with Nebraska Farmer for his talk about forest restoration. And for Betty Haynes with Prairie Farmer and her biosecurity conversation. Like I said, a lot was going on. This was another set of interesting topics. And if you don't want to miss what we're talking about here at Around Farm Progress, simply subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and more. And if you have a smart speaker, all you have to do is tell it to listen to Around Farm Progress, and you'll hear the latest episode. Next week, we're doing something a little different. Jacqueline Holland with Farm Futures is teaming up with one of our digital team members, Rachel Shute, for a new approach to the podcast. Make sure you make plans to join us. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs, and our events including the Farm Progress Show, Husker Harvest Days, the Farm Futures Summit, and the New York Farm Show. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.